This morning, I want to speak to you a little bit about some things to keep in mind as we face the many types of sufferings that we have to endure, that we're called upon to endure from time to time in this world, and not so much focus on the sufferings themselves, though that will be something that we speak about, but the initial response to suffering, the initial response to suffering. And as we introduce that thought to you today, there are so many things that we could share as we talk about sufferings, how that we cope with that, the way that we are to dig into the Word of God, the way that our brothers and sisters in the church can be a support group to us, a group of helpers for us in our moments. What I really have in mind for you this morning is when those initial pains come, when something hits you and it blindsides you, something, as they say, hits you out of the blue, what it is that you do, how you approach that, how you deal with that, how you cope with that. Now, the sad fact is that the world we live in is one that is plagued with suffering. In our country, we're very blessed. We're so very blessed in this country. We don't suffer with hunger the way the average person in some other countries suffer with hunger. We don't suffer from oppression of our government the way other countries suffer. Any time in this country that someone is on the news or online whining about how oppressed they are in our country, I just want to drop them from a parachute, add the parachute, in Iran or Saudi Arabia or China or some of these other countries where people really do face oppression. But even though we live in a very sheltered world, and we all live in a very sheltered world, there's suffering in our world, great suffering in our own town. You can turn on the news and see stories of robberies and domestic violence and home invasions. There was one of those not far from our home this past week, and it just reminds you that as safe as you feel in your own home, we are very much every day at risk. And none of us escape that risk. But we also have different types of sufferings. We have cancers, and we have heart disease, and we have Parkinson's, and just one problem after another. And the sufferings that you go through in your life are not the same sufferings that I go through. We all have our own various individual forms of sufferings. We might suffer problems in relationships. We might suffer problems with finances. We might have those in our lives that are harmful to us and abusive to us and toxic to us. We all have to go through suffering in this world. As we've said many times here, it's not a matter of if we suffer, but when we suffer. It isn't a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. We all will suffer. Sometimes we suffer and it causes us great fear. There are diagnoses that you might get and it might cause you great fear. There are times that you may suffer a heartbreaking loss. There are various things that we go through in this world and every single problem is a real problem. It's something that you have to face. It's something that you have to go through. Sometimes we try to outdo one another with our sufferings and with a couple of family members in mind, it doesn't matter what another person's going through, they've been through something worse. Have you ever known somebody like that? And it doesn't matter how bad your life is at the moment, someone else is going through something worse and they have to tell you all about it. It's not a competition. 
And it's also not to say that your sufferings are insignificant compared to the sufferings of another person. Suffering hurts, loss hurts, disease hurts, fear hurts, and one person might be facing pancreatic cancer and another person might have a spot of skin cancer. And in the risk of those, you might think one is far more devastating and fearful than the other, but the old saying goes, no surgery is a minor surgery if you're the person going through it, right? We all have suffering and none of it is to be diminished we shouldn't look at it and say, well, my problems are so much less than another person's, they're not as important. And we shouldn't look at it as a competition where we try to put our problems that we deal with over another person's problems that they deal with. Suffering is real. Suffering is everywhere. We all go through it. And I think one of the points that we developed today is that God, our Savior Christ, cares for us. And whatever the suffering is that you go through in any moment in your life, He cares for you. He loves you. And in that moment, whether it be something you might think as minor as a, a little appendix surgery or a broken bone or something as great as a cancer or the loss of a loved one, God loves you and He, he sympathizes with you. And one of the phrases that we'll look at today from Hebrews chapter 4 we have a high priest, our God, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That means that when you hurt, he feels that. He is touched by the feeling of your infirmities. He knows what you're going through because Jesus lived a life in this world in which he felt and experienced every type of human suffering imaginable from homelessness to poverty to hunger to rejection to betrayal to the destruction of his reputation from the mouths of liars and even the loss, the potential loss of those that he loved. There were family members he loved that had died, people that he loved that had died. And in one instance that I was thinking about this week, though it's not something that I intend to talk about today, when Lazarus died, Jesus went to his tomb and what did he do? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And so he's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what you go through. And it doesn't matter if you think your problems are great or small. Jesus knows what you're going through. He loves you and he cares for you. Just to speak in brief on the nature of suffering in the world, we know that in the beginning of time, God created a world that was perfect. When God looked at everything he made at the conclusion of every day, he looked at it and he beheld that it was what? It was good. There was no flaw in anything that God made. It was perfect. At the conclusion of creation, God looks out at everything and not only is it good, but he sees that it is, yea, very good. Completely perfect. Without blemish, without spot, without sin, without suffering. God made a world that was perfect. But we know that the world didn't stay that way for long because of the transgression of our father, Adam. Adam sinned. He violated the law of God. And Adam plunged our world into chaos, into sin, into suffering, into affliction. We know through the sin of Adam, according to Romans chapter 5, that by his transgression, death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And so we all will experience death. Every single one of us will die. It's a universal judgment of God against all of mankind. The wrath of God revealed from heaven against all manner of ungodliness, according to Romans chapter 1. We all die. But our lives between conception and death 
our lives that many times involve suffering. What did God tell Adam? Dying, thou shalt die. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. One of the center column alternate translations of that that the KJV translators put in their translation is dying, thou shalt die. We die and we do it in a dying way. Our lives are full of many times sufferings that we would rather not endure because dying we shall die. And so life is a life many times of suffering. When God shows up on the scene, he was there in his omnipresence, but he personally shows up in the Garden of Eden after Adam sinned, and he begins to ask him what he did, why he did it, what has happened, and he begins to give curses. One of the cursings that we read is that the earth is cursed for our sake. And because of that, it brings forth thorns and thistles because of the transgression. You find this in Genesis chapter 3. And by the sweat of Adam's face would he till the ground until he was turned back into the dust. In other words, you were made from dust. You're going back to dust. From the time between dust and dust, you're going to till the ground with Sweat and difficulty, and all of this, again, is because of what? It's because of sin. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. You ever wonder why it's so easy to grow crabgrass and so difficult to grow things that are good to eat and pleasant to the eye? It's simply the same answer behind every cancer, behind Parkinson's, behind Alzheimer's, behind any problem, and that's the sin of Adam. Because sin entered into the world, the world became a place of suffering and sorrow. And one of the words that we'll look at today from Romans 8, much of what we say today will be at different portions of our message from Romans chapter 8. The creation groans because of the sin of Adam. Turning to Romans chapter 8, the latter portion of that and the point of Paul mentioning all of these types of sufferings to us is to tell us that no matter what suffering you're going through, Christ is the victor over your suffering. We often think about the cross of Christ from the proper perspective of salvation from our sinfulness and our sins. And we've been saved not only from our sin, that is our nature, but our sins, as in He paid for our transgressions. He has washed us whiter than snow. But remember that we're not just saved from one thing to the other from the sense of no more sin, no more penalty, but we're saved to an existence of full conformity to the image of Christ wherein there is no sorrow, there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no death. Revelation chapter 21. And so we look for a day when there is no suffering in any way for any of God's beloved And here in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes about the victory that we have over sin and death and suffering through Christ and how through Christ we are even victors, conquerors in death. He begins to ask the things that, of the things that plague us in this world. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. I would encourage you to do a word study on that word elect from the Word of God. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Intercession's integral to what we talk about today. Jesus pleading our case to the Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And he begins to list the types of sufferings that are so common. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. You have just about every type of suffering that a person can experience. Tribulation, when you suffer various causes in the world. Distress, things that plague you either mentally, emotionally, or even physically. Persecution, when someone despises you because of Christ and they afflict you for that. Famine, which is illness. Nakedness. When you have so little of this world's goods that you find yourself even lacking clothing to wear. And that's an affliction that many of us have never had to face in our lives. If you look at images of many people from other countries, I saw an image once of a, a bunch of children that had taken plastic water bottles and crushed them down and used twine to make sandals for them to wear. Nakedness, where they barely have the cloth to cover themselves. Peril or sword. Peril often involves danger. Paul was in peril from robbers and from false brethren and from his own countrymen. And of course, sword would be primarily the power of the government that would oppress them in that day. Paul mentioned this not to whine about his condition, and he faced every single one of these, and you can read a list of them in 2 Corinthians, as he gloried in his infirmities. But to say that though it's true that for Jesus' sake we are killed all the day long and we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter, in all of these things we are what? More than conquerors. Does that mean we're always victorious in this world? No, it means that we have a Savior who died for us. And listen to me very carefully. There's coming a day in which every wrong will be made right. And in that day... We are more than conquerors. How can you be more than the person that wins? How can you be more than the winner? That's what we'll be in that day over all of our adversity. More than conquerors through Him that loved us. And I remind you that that is not today. That day is not today. We might not be victorious over an affliction today. But there's coming a day in which every enemy shall be defeated. Even death, even Satan, even all of his angels, but every single one of them will be defeated. Paul goes on to say, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's children are secure in Christ. Theology proper from the New Testament emphatically declares that there is no taking a sheep of Christ from the hand of their Savior. We are safe and secure in Christ. So says the Word of God. All the various types of suffering. Back up into the earlier portions of Romans chapter 8. And this is a passage that we'll look at a couple of times today. We'll leave it and come back to it. Paul remarks that in verse 22, we know 
that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. Theologians have understood this in so many different ways. Some have applied it directly to God's children and the new nature they have within them and how we yearn for deliverance. Some have applied it to all of creation in general. Regardless of which interpretation of that you hold, I think that we can say that the world around us screams in agony. Now that phrase, groaneth and travaileth in pain, if you're a Bible reader, you'll notice that this is terminology that Scripture often uses to describe a woman in childbirth. Now, you sisters, I can say that I have gone through childbirth five times, and it was so terrible for me. I fainted. How many times did I actually gray out and stop talking, Rachel? Uh, I would say the first time they made me leave the room, which was with Ethan. The second time I asked for a recliner by the head of the bed. Some of you dads that are like, let me help the doctor, let me help the doctor. You're crazy. Panic attack, everything turns gray, my blood pressure goes through the floor, and I, I lose it. I faint. But as bad as that was on me, it, would you believe it was far worse on Sister Rachel? The pain of giving birth. Now, by the way, that's also a product of the sin. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, the curse that was given to Eve was that her desire shall be to her husband, and in sorrow, in sorrow shall she bear her children. The terms that Paul uses to describe the state of creation... The agony of a creation marred with sin and suffering is that it, it groans and travails like a woman who is in pain giving birth. I think that's probably one of the most extreme pains that any of you have ever experienced. I saw something recently online, and I love, I love the jokes about men when they're sick, that when a, when a man, when a woman gives birth, it... It enables her to experience the full degree of pain that a man experiences when he has a cold. We make light of that as men, but it's a pain that we don't know. We haven't understood. And that's how Paul describes creation in agony. That's extreme. Now, as we still set up the thought to you today of how we cope with it, how we deal with it initially when the pain comes. I want to turn over to the book of 1 Thessalonians just to read a statement. There's a phrase I want to grab out of 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Now, Paul is writing to a church that has experienced extreme persecution, and many of their church members, many of their beloved brothers and sisters, had been put to death. They had been martyred for their faith in Christ. We, we hate when someone is missing at church. We're sad when somebody's absent. I know that they're part of our beloved congregation today who is watching the live stream because they're sick and they're unable to be here. Some are out of town, and we miss every time any individual is not able to be with us in worship. And we, we really, Brother Yule, we really lament it when they move away. Imagine if a portion of our congregation had lost their life to persecution. 
when you look at the empty spot in the building where they used to sit, you remember that painful death that they experienced. That happened to them. That was real to them. It wasn't hypothetical. It wasn't theory. It wasn't simply theology, but it was something that they had gone through. He writes to them then, and he encourages them in the resurrection. What is the final undoing of all of the terrible things of this life? It is the resurrection. When we are raised in a glorified state, and the word glory is something we'll consider as we turn back to Romans 8 momentarily. Paul writes to them and he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, listen to this, even as others which have no hope. And then he goes on to encourage them, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. We which are alive and remain shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. In other words, Jesus is coming back again. He brings the disembodied souls of God's children. He raises their bodies. The souls are then rejoined with the bodies. And we which are alive and remain, we witness all of that. And after it's concluded, then we will go up, because the word prevent means to go before or precede. We will not prevent them which are asleep. We go after them that are raised. But what does Paul say concerning this? That we sorrow not even as others which what have no hope. This means that Christians are to handle and process the pains of this life in a different way than those who do not know the Lord. Your relationship with Christ and your knowledge of His Word is to alter the way that you perceive suffering and the way that you handle the afflictions of this world. I think we all know that, don't we? Putting it into practice is another story. But Paul says that there is a difference here in the way we handle calamity than those who do not know Christ that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. You, beloved, have a hope. You have a hope. It's a word that we'll use many times today. And it comes into our points on how to cope with this. And I just want to define it for you, not as a wish or a dream, but an earnest expectation. Something that you fully anticipate receiving. When Paul wrote of hope, he didn't use the word as we often do many times when the, the Powerball gets up to so-and-so bazillion dollars and everybody drives to Tennessee because we live in Alabama. If you live over in Anniston, you drive to Georgia. If you live down in South Alabama, you drive to Florida. I don't drive anywhere because I'd rather have the $2. Thank you very much. Buy a cup of coffee or a soft drink with that $2. Add three more and I can get a box from Taco Bell. Why would I want to spend it and however much in gas to drive up and waste $2 on a lottery ticket that I'm not going to win? I stand a better chance of getting struck by lightning while being bitten by a shark <laughs> in Logan Martin. You know, I mean, you just, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We talk about it and we say, I hope I win the lottery. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is fully anticipating that you're going to receive that which you desire. When I say, I hope, I have a hope, and we'll talk about the deliverance that comes in hope today. This hope isn't a wish. It's not a pipe dream. But it is an expectation of something that you fully anticipate receiving. 
Scripture speaks of earnest expectations, and that's what we what we define biblical hope as being. Another thing to remember as we just speak, and this is one of those 40-minute prefaces, as we speak about suffering and introduce the thought to you today, we're to be those who mourn with those that mourn. We recently talked about this here. We mourn with them that mourn. We rejoice with them that rejoice. And this language comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 10, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, and honor preferring one another. That means to prefer their wants and desires and their lives and their success above our own. That's the opposite of human nature. Not slothful in business, meaning that we take care of things in an efficient manner. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in what? Hope. Patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that do weep. We mourn with those that mourn. We not only sympathize with them, but we share empathy with them. To mourn with them that mourn means that we are empathetic with them. We are in a sense, like our Savior, then, when we mourn with them, touched by their infirmities. We share in your grief as a family in Christ. Now this morning, as we begin to go into the how to respond to suffering, the tone that I want to have and what I want us to envision in our mind is placing ourselves individually in the room with the suffering person. Now I enjoy heralding I enjoy heralding the gospel of Christ. And I get animated and I get louder and the voice inflections change a little similar to the, to the way that you would respond if you're cheering for your favorite football team. We we serve a Christ that is worth that is worth cheerleading. Say that again. We serve a Christ that is worth cheerleading. We ought to be as cheerleaders, but sometimes the message is somber and heavy, and we come to you more as a a counselor and a pastor and someone who loves you and wants to help you. And so I want us to envision that we sit in the room today with someone who suffers or that we're suffering, and we focus on how to help and how to heal, and how to pursue Christ in those moments. Now, as we think about helping those that seek help, just to give you a a little note on that, we'll emphasize the word seek. If someone you know is suffering, and they haven't asked for advice probably the best thing to do is just to sit silently and weep with them. There are times when we can't fix it with words. Well, just cheer up, chin up, things are going to be better. You know what? That that is true. But there's a time when we just sit with someone and we just endure it with them. Job's friends became miserable comforters, not when they showed up, but when they began to speak. 
And then he referred to them as miserable comforters because when they opened their mouths, they demonstrated that it would have been much better if they had simply sat there silent and not tried to fix it. Now, how many of us are fix-it people? Oh, me. Boy, I'm a micromanaging fix-it person. Did you all know that? If I could script any more details of my life and things that I do, that would be great. Just a compulsive details person if it's something that I really care about. Sometimes we can't fix it. Sometimes we don't fix it. Sometimes we don't try to fix it. Sometimes we just mourn with those that mourn. And so this is more framed from the perspective of the person is seeking help. What do we say? What do we do? If I'm seeking to heal from something that I've gone through, how do I deal with that? How to respond to suffering? Well, I have three points for you to keep in mind and to put into practice. And the first one of these will probably be the more lengthy. And it's so very simple, but so commonly left undone. When you are suffering, when you are going through grief, cry out to God. Cry out to God. The word cry implies loudness of voice. We miss, we miss because we are so sophisticated that primitive worship of the Old Testament saint. How many times in the Old Testament do you read of someone falling on their face before God? Or lifting up their hands and looking to the heavens and crying out to God. There are times when suffering is so great that I want you to remember this. Lift up your voice. Look up to heaven. Put your arms out in front of you. And with a loud voice beg God that he would deliver you. Now I'm going to ask you, have you ever done that? There have been times in my life when I did that privately, privately, I've done that. The most recent time was in mid-2016 when my mother was facing a, what we thought was an inoperable brain aneurysm at that time. And had it not been able to be treated, and it was, a, it was an experimental surgery, they didn't know that they could treat it. You say, what's my prognosis? What's my life expectancy? And the doctor, who's one of the best brain surgeons in the world, said, I don't know. We don't do a lot of these based on the shape and what we're going to do. He didn't even know if she'd be able to recover enough to have a quality of life because of the nature, the invasiveness of the brain surgery. 47 staples on the side of her head. When that news broke, let me tell you what I did. I went into my office and nobody was here. And I shut the door, and I cried to God, tears rolling down my face, on my knees with words that I couldn't even get out of my mouth. But you know what? God heard that prayer. And praise God, on October 3rd, 2016, she went through a successful brain surgery. And we look back on that now as something that was terrifying in the moment, but God heard and He delivered God heard and he delivered. Simply put, crying out to God is a form of prayer, but it's so much more emotional 
What do we read in James? That the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Fervency. The word means heat. It's not just for, Lord, I really hope that you help me out with this. No, you're crying out to God in the midst of your affliction. You know, the natural instinct of a living creature is to cry out when it is in pain. Praise God that you have someone to cry out to. I want to spend just a few moments looking at a survey of the book of Psalms and passages that deal with crying out to God. And I want to encourage you, when you suffer in this world, to cry to God. Cry out to Him. Jesus described our prayer life as our prayer closet. It's private. You don't have to come before the church and kneel down and wail in front of us. We would be glad to come around you and lay hands on you and pray as you weep and cry to God. But this is something that many times is private in our lives. We cry out to God and it is a form of prayer. And again, it is by definition loud. Psalm 3, verse 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and He heard me out of His holy hill. Look at the context of this. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Now this was written by David, if you have a subheading here, when he fled from Absalom, his son. His son's trying to kill him and take his throne. But as with many of these psalms, it's shaded with messianic context, ultimately pointing to the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. But thou, O God, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. I laid me down and slept. I was awakened, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, and save me. From whom? From his enemies. Save me from my enemies. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheek. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Psalm 18. And this is not an exhaustive list, but we find so many of these in the Psalms. And might I suggest when we go through whatever it is that we go through in this life, more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Psalms gives you the emotional strength and support. As you dig into the Psalms when you go through something that is terrifying or painful and you're lamenting it, go to the book of Psalms. Go to the Psalms. Jesus quoted that book more than any other book in the Old Testament. More places in that book speak of Him than any other place in the Old Testament. Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God, he heard my voice out of his temple. My cry came before him even unto his ears. By the way, we sang number 478 today in our song service. Back up to verse 3 of Psalm 18. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Verbatim in that hymn from Psalm 18. When you called it out, I was excited because I knew it was one of the passages that I was going to look at today. Psalm 30, which we use for, I believe we used Psalm 28 for our scripture reading, didn't we? 
Psalm 28, unto thee will I cry, O Lord. Psalm 30, I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and hast made, not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought my soul from the grave and hast kept me alive that I should not go down into the pit. I want you to notice verse 5. For his anger endureth for a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Joy cometh in the morning. Psalm 34 speaks of crying out unto the Lord. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. If you read every one of these psalms that I've quoted, the common theme is suffering. Sometimes from death, sometimes from enemies, sometimes even from the betrayal of one's own loved ones. You can imagine a deeper pain than what David felt when Absalom had led insurrection against him. Psalm 77 another one of these psalms that speaks of crying out unto God. What I want you to see here is that it is a biblical thing that we often lose sight of in our sophisticated lives to hit our knees and audibly cry out to God. What do we do when we suffer? Were you expecting a 10-step program to fix the problem today? That's not the message today. It's crying out to God, the source of your strength. Not only is it therapeutic, because when you cry out to Him, He comforts you with a peace that passeth all understanding. But as we cry and we make our petitions, even if we can't articulate them, the Spirit in us makes intercessions with groanings that cannot be uttered. And He hears and He answers. His answer might be, my grace is sufficient. But many times His answer is to take away the affliction or give you a way to deal with the afflictions. Psalm 77 I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice. He gave ear unto me. In that day of trouble, of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. Now this is a psalm of Asaph. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. And by the way, notice verses 7 through 9. In our cryings unto God... Notice what Asaph does. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will He be favorable no more? In His mercy, is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth His promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath He in His anger shut up His tender mercies? Part of what Asaph does when he cries to God is ask God, why are things happening like this? It is not unbiblical to ask why something happens. Now, along those lines, we don't threaten God. We don't question His judgment. God, I don't believe that that was right for you to do. Far be it. God forbid. But there are times in our cries that we can say, Lord, why? Lord, have you left me? Lord, have you in your wrath cast me off forever? Are you clean gone forever? But notice what he follows up with. 
I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. If there's one thing that we can learn from studying God's interactions with men through the history of this world is that God is never through with his people. You might question it in your cries, in your pain, in your suffering, but God is not through with you. God is not through with you. In Revelation 8, 4, and we'll move off. There are several other psalms that we wanted to look at, but for the sake of time, we'll move on from this. Revelation 8, 4 describes the prayers of the saints ascending before God as incense. When you burn incense, what does it do? It rises up. Our prayers ascend before God in His throne room in glory. He hears your prayers. We referenced Hebrews chapter 4 a moment ago as we talked about the fact that we have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Because we have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, do you know what the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to do? To come boldly to the throne of grace to find Grace to help in time of need. We obtain mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. Go cry unto your Savior, Jesus Christ. He loves you. He feels what you're going through. He cares for you. Now, number two, and we've got to move quickly. As you cry out to God, what I would exhort is that you... Trust in God. God is worthy of our trust. He knows tomorrow. He knows the next day. He knows the day after that. He knows next year. He declares the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, and the things that are not yet done come to pass, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46. God does what He wants, and He knows everything. He loves you, and we know that we can trust Him. We can trust Him. 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. We commit our souls, the keeping of our souls to Him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. God is faithful. Now, as we think about trusting God, and we, we have to run, it's no longer a marathon, it's a sprint. We have to run with this. God is immutable. God is immutable. What does that mean? Mute, they're the root for mutate. God is immutable, God doesn't change. In his immutability, his immutable attributes, he is omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present, nowhere absent. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He loves you. He's rich in mercy. He's slow to wrath. And above everything, he is holy and he is faithful. Because God is faithful because God does not change. Beloved, trust him. Trust him. Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will what? Never leave thee, nor forsake thee. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. As we read in Malachi 3.6, God does not change. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Because He never changes, and He will never leave us nor forsake us in our moments of grief down here in this world. We commit our trust to Him. Now this brings to mind a very important concept, and that is the concept of patience. What did we read of in Romans chapter 12? Patience. Patience. Which can be defined as steadfast waiting. There are times in our lives when we must be patient. And it implies enduring something that is unpleasant as you remain steadfast, waiting on God's intervention. One of the things that I intended to say as we think about the crying out to God and remaining faithful in that affliction in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus 1, a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph and didn't respect the people of Israel, the Hebrews, and he began to afflict them. They enslaved them. They made them build their buildings and their cities and whatever it is that they did, they had to do it with great bondage and oppression. And Israel, the Hebrews, they cried out to God. And God heard their cries. But they didn't suffer a month. They didn't suffer a year. Decade upon decade upon decade as it got worse and worse and worse and worse. Hundreds of years. They suffered. And God heard their cry. And God intervened. God overruled. God delivered. We trust Him. Finally, point number three. We've used this word a few times today already. It's the word hope. We are, as Romans chapter 8 says, saved, saved by hope. Now, we've used the word save in a variety of ways today. Did you notice from the Psalms it's saved from enemies and afflictions and all kinds of terrible things? In Romans chapter 8, the deliverance that we read off here is from hopelessness. We are saved by hope. When we suffer in this world, the hope that we have in Christ is a salvation in and of itself. We already mentioned how the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Let's back up and read a few verses of this together. He speaks about us having deliverance from condemnation in chapter 8 and verse 1 after spending much of chapter 7 talking about our present conflict, that we have the spirit and the flesh and these two opposing natures cause us to do things we hate and cause us to neglect things that we love. He speaks about the deliverance that we have in Christ. And then he goes on to speaking about the fact that we're born of the Spirit and the Spirit lives in us. We are the children of God because the Spirit has come into our hearts. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, verse 14. We've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption where we, what? Cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, 
If so be that we suffer with him, that we might also, that we may be also glorified together. Now, by the way, side point, we suffer in this world because the world hates Christ. And because the world persecutes us because it hates Christ. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we suffer with him. We share in his sufferings. I reckon, and that's not a southern term here. It means I've calculated it, I've tabulated it, I've done the math. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Knowing that the last phase of our salvation is glorification and that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, understanding that as I go through this life of sorrow and pain and sickness and death, what do I have? I have hope. I have an expectation of deliverance from the problems that I experience. Look at that word glory for just a moment. It so many times conveys the act of glowing. Paul would use this in the Corinthian letter. There's a different glory of the stars and celestial bodies and the word glory can simply mean shining bright. When Jesus displayed his glory, what did he do? He glowed so bright that he was brighter than the noonday sun. The glory of God is often compared with light unto which no man can approach. The final phase of our salvation in verse 30 is glorification. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also what? Glorified. And because of that, as we live in this world of sufferings, we have hope. We have hope. We know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body, we groan. Now, by the way, in verse 26, we read that the Spirit makes intercessions with groanings that cannot be uttered. In other words, you have an advocate even in you, the third person of the Godhead, crying out to the second person of the Godhead, who cries out to the first person of the Godhead, all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together, working together synergized for your good. For we are saved by hope. What gets you through the moment of grief and affliction when something so terrible happens to you that all you can do is cry? You hope. You hope. You don't fix it. And you certainly shouldn't be expected to get over it. Now, there are things in this life you simply get through. Memorize that. There are things in this life you do not get over, but by God's grace, you get through them. Let's end today with a simple reading of Isaiah 61. We cry out to God. We trust in God. And we find hope in God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. These are the words of Christ. 
In prophecy written by Isaiah, Christ fulfilled these words when he began his ministry to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. Ashes implies that something has been destroyed even to the ground. And Jesus exchanges the ashes for beauty. The oil of joy for mourning. He takes away your sadness and your sorrow and He gives you joy. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He might be glorified. Christ will make right every wrong in His time, in His way, and even if the wrong is not made right in this world, it will be made right in the world to come, and that hope saves us in our moment of affliction. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for these portions of Your Word. We know, Lord, that we can always come to You, but there are times when the suffering and the pain and the sorrow is so great that we cry out unto you. Lord, help us to help your children in their moment of affliction. Help us to mourn with them that mourn, to weep with them that weep, to rejoice with them that rejoice. We know, Lord, that in this room there are people that are going through all kinds of different types of suffering and worries and fears and pains. And Lord, you know every single one of them. You're touched by the feeling of, your, of their infirmities. You love them, you care for them, you provide for them, and you will deliver them. If not in this world, Father, we know it will be in the world to come. Thank you for our Savior, Lord. We understand that we have all of these things. We have all of these things through the sacrifice of your Son, and he gives these things to us freely. No way that we could buy the great blessings that you've given us. There's nothing we could do to earn the blessings that you give us. But, Father, you loved us. You, you were merciful. You pitied us. We thank you, Father, for this amazing grace that you have. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.